Well, good morning, everybody. Great to see you all. My name is uh, Mike Bro, and I get to show up here from time to time. I get the privilege of uh, teaching at this wonderful place. I want to welcome all of you that might be joining us online today as well. So grateful for all y'all. And I heard there was an awesome event on Friday night, volunteer celebration. So I, yeah, I just want to thank everybody that serves around this place. So grateful for you. I mean, this place would not exist without you. So thanks for the way you serve and give and sacrifice. And since I won't get to be around this Christmas, uh, let me just go ahead and say Merry Christmas to you. And whoever decorated the lobby, we need to thank them too. It looks amazing out there. Thank you guys so much. And be thinking about who you're going to invite to the Christmas services because that's an easy invite and be a great way to get somebody connected to this church family and more importantly, uh, connected to the lover of their soul. Hey, we've been tracking through this little devotional book this year called Quest 52. And the reading this week was asking the question, why did Jesus die? And if you read the chapter, you know it gets pretty graphic about the crucifixion of Jesus. And all of that just doesn't seem real Christmassy, you know? Seems more Easter season than it does, you know, silent night, baby in a manger. But really, you cannot separate the two events. So what I'd like to try to do today is to bring all that together. And to do that, I want to talk about shadows. Now, as many of you know, uh, my wife Debbie and I recently moved back to Kentucky after living in Southern California for eight years. And one of the things I loved most about living there was the way the mountains went right down into the water, right down into the ocean. And those mountains would cast shadows late in the day. And those shadows would point toward a beautiful sunset that was getting ready to happen out over the water. Now, if you go to parts of maybe downtown New Albany or downtown Louisville or, or any big city for that matter at night, and you see some shadows lurking from a dark alleyway, you're going to steer clear, right? When, when, that, when that little guy, uh, uh, Puxatani Phil, is that his name? When he pokes his head out of the ground on Groundhog Day, there will be six more weeks of winter if he sees his shadow, right? And the Old Testament section of the Bible is full of, you guessed it, shadows. Shadows that point to what was to come. Not just for one nation, but for everybody on the planet. Now, real, real honest here. How many of you students had a book report due. And instead of reading the book, you just Googled the book synopsis and you turned that in as your book report, right? Uh, anybody remember the old school cliff notes, right? Those things saved my life in school. They were just a summary of the book. You didn't have to read the whole book. You could just read like the cliff notes. So let me just give you the cliff notes of the Bible. Now, I hope you will read it. Read the book. It's really, really good. But if I just had to sum up the Bible in a few sentences, it'd be like this. God longs for a relationship with people like us. People like us broke that relationship. So God moves throughout history to restore the broken relationship with people like us. That's pretty much the story of the Bible. It's a love story. And the Old Testament section of the Bible is full of shadows that point to something else, someone else. He's coming. He's coming. He will make things right. He will bring healing. He will bring freedom. He will bring light. He'll bring forgiveness. He will restore the broken relationship between God and people like us. Now, we know who he is, but all they could see back then were just shadows pointing to the one who was coming. You might remember how God comes to this really old man named Abraham, and he tells him that he and his wife are going to have a child. 
And from that child would come offspring that would outnumber the grains of sand on every beach in the world. And from their family tree would someday come this great nation from whom someone would come who would bless the entire world. Hang on to that shadow. Well, they crack up when God tells them that, especially his wife, Sarah, because she's thinking, we're going to be buying pampers with this social security check. This is crazy. So they named the kid, guess what? Laughter. They named him Laughter. His name is Isaac. And they were head over heels about this kid, the promise, the dream, the one through whom God promised a great nation would come. And eventually all the nations of the earth would be blessed because the Messiah, the savior of the world would come through this boy, their boy. And Isaac was the laughter and light of their life. But then came a day when the light began to fade and the laughter began to subside. And the God they were in covenant with says to Abraham, take your boy, your only son Isaac, the one you're crazy about, and I want you to climb up Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there. Excuse me? What? You know, Abraham has to be absolutely shocked. This goes against every parenting instinct that God has placed within him. This goes against everything he knows to be right about life. This goes against everything he knows to be true about love. This goes against everything he knows to be true about God's character. God gave him this boy. He loves this boy. This is way too big of an ask. And besides, God made a promise. God had made an unbreakable covenant to bless the world through this boy, their boy. And God does not break covenants. He always keeps his word. Some of you know the story how Abraham and Isaac pack up for their trip and Isaac puts the wood for the sacrifice on his back and they climb up Mount Moriah together. And I can't imagine what was going on in Abraham's heart when Isaac says to him, the fire and the wood are here, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? What about the sacrifice? There's there's no animal. And amid all this confusion and heartache going on in his soul, Abraham gently says to his boy, God will provide. God will provide. You see, true faith doesn't mean that you have no doubts. It doesn't mean that there's not a knot in your stomach as you take the next step. True True faith means you hang on to the character of God. Even when the road gets dark. It tells us over in the New Testament book of Hebrews, it was by faith that Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice when God was testing him. Abraham, who had received God's promises, that's key, was ready to sacrifice his only son Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned. Abraham reasoned. God made a promise. And if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. In a sense, Abraham did receive his son back from the dead. You see, when they get to the top of Mount Moriah and and they're about to go through with it, God stops it all and provides a ram caught in a thicket to be the sacrifice instead. Yeah, this is a big time shadow. And the promise begins to unfold. From Abraham to Isaac, from Isaac to Jacob, from Jacob to Joseph and his 12 brothers. And they eventually do become this great nation. In fact, they become the nation that many of us have been praying for the past few months, the nation of Israel. And you can read all these stories in the very first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. So the descendants of Abraham and his promised son Isaac are living in the land of Egypt. And Joseph, who was one of their own, was in charge. But when Joseph dies, it says that a new Pharaoh, a new king 
arises that did not know Joseph. And he was not sympathetic in the least to this growing nation. In fact, he was intimidated by them. So his reign begins over 400 years of racial discrimination, brutal slavery for the Israelite people. Super oppressive time. And many of you know the story of the, of the Exodus. It's in the second book of the Bible called Exodus, how the Israelite people are finally delivered from their bondage by the power of God. And guess what? That's a shadow of something much, much greater that was coming. God uses this guy named Moses, who himself was a shadow, pointing to another deliverer to come, that blessing for all the nations that God had promised Abraham would come through his offspring. So God meets with Moses on the backside of a mountain called Sinai. And he tells him, Moses, I'm ready to move. I love my people. I've seen the trouble that they're in. I've heard their cries. I am going to deliver my people from slavery and abuse. And Moses, I want to use you to lead them out of Egypt. Now, make no mistake about it, Moses. It won't be about your own power. You just need to be available because the great I am is about to move. And so Moses goes to the evil Pharaoh and tells him, God told me that the people have to go. And Pharaoh laughs at Moses and his God and says, no way. And he makes things a lot worse for the Israelites. So God then sends a series of plagues on Egypt, flies, frogs, boils, hail, finally death. And he tells the people that death would not touch them if they would kill a lamb and spread its blood over the doorpost of their doors. And if they would do that, then death would pass over their families. Well, the blood of the lamb a big time shadow, eventually bought their freedom. In fact, still today, many Jewish families around the world gratefully celebrate that Passover every year. You might remember how after that, Pharaoh finally tells Moses, all right, all right, all right, take your people and get the heck out of here. Then as he sees his free labor force leaving the country, he has a change of heart and comes after them with the full force of his military. Well, God through Moses miraculously leads them through the Red Sea on dry ground and then their past and their pursuers are buried in the water. By the way, that's a shadow. What's happened to so many of us through baptism? Our past and the things that used to pursue us and hold us captive, they got buried in the water. As you might imagine, it was an awesome day for the people of Israel. It was an awesome day for their history. They were finally free. I mean, they were so grateful and they were so joyful and they celebrated big time. However, on the other side of the Red Sea, the people wouldn't always be so grateful. They wouldn't always sing songs of praise to the one who had just rescued them from, from bondage in Egypt. In fact, they had extremely short memories. So God would give them constant reminders object lessons to, to tell them just who he was. He would send this uh, bread-like substance from heaven called manna, which literally means, what is it? It would rain from the sky and they would gather just enough to eat for each day, a shadow of the whole give us this day our daily bread thing that Jesus taught us. God would miraculously, miraculously send quail for them to eat. He would cause water to spring out of rocks right in the middle of the desert. He would guide them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. All reminders of God's constant provision. All reminders of his faithfulness as their father. And all these things and many, many more were just shadows. Shadows of things to come that pointed to something much greater that would happen someday.
For instance, God tells Moses in Exodus 25, have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live among them. You must build this tabernacle and its furnishings exactly according to the pattern I will show you. Anybody here like to camp? Any campers? How many tent people we got? Tent people, RV people, hotel people. Yeah, absolutely, right? Now this, this tabernacle that God asked him to build was an amazingly beautiful tent that was kind of like God's RV that they could tear down and set up when they were on their road trip to the promised land. And there were detailed blueprints of how this thing was to be built, set up, designed, and furnished. And every bit of it was a shadow of what was to come. And there's all kinds of symbolism contained there in the tabernacle, no time to launch into all that today. But there was a curtain around it, there was a courtyard, there was an altar of burnt offering, there was a lampstand, a wash basin, altar of incense, the holy place, a curtain separating the most holy place from the holy place which signified the very presence of God. And all of it, every bit of it, was a shadow. And do you know where God tells them to set up his tent? You would think God said, you know, I, I want to get away from the noise. You put me out in my own private villa outside of camp. No, God says, I want, to, I want you to set it up right smack dab in the middle of all the people. I want to be right in the middle of their life. Again, it's a shadow. Did you know that God wants to be right in the center of your life? Right in the middle of your life. He doesn't want to be on the many spokes on the wheel of your life. He wants to be the hub of your life. And this is so cool. When we invite Jesus Christ to become the forgiver of our sin, when we let him restore that broken relationship that our sin and rebellion has caused, God's spirit comes down and dwells not in a tent, not in a tabernacle, not in a temple, not in a church building made by human hands. He dwells in a human heart. And he's saying to us, just as he did to Israel, I just want to live with you. I want to be right in the middle of your life. I want to do life with you every single day. In the most holy place of the tabernacle, there was this chest made of acacia wood. It was four feet long, but two and a half feet wide. It was covered in gold. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. You've seen the old Indiana Jones movies, right? Where the Nazi's face melts off. It's gross. Again, this thing was a shadow box, so to speak, representing God's promise, God's covenant with the people and their covenant with God. Does anybody know what was inside of the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark were these tablets upon which God had written the original top 10 list. These 10 commandments were to be a blueprint for the kind of life that God wanted them and all of us for that matter to live. So Moses climbs up Mount Sinai to appear before God and God tells him, I have clearly demonstrated my affection and faithfulness to all of you. Now I wanna give you some guidelines to live by that will not only be a great way for you to live, but it'll give people a chance to express their faithfulness back to me. So he invites Moses and his brother Aaron to come up on Mount Sinai where he verbalizes the 10 commandments along with some other guidelines. And Moses comes back down the mountain and shares these 10 commandments that God had told, told he and Aaron. Some of you are familiar with the list. The list kind of goes like this. Number one, no other gods but me. Number two, no idol worship. Number three, don't profane my name. Number four, set apart a day for Sabbath rest. Uh, number five, honor your parents. Number six, don't murder. Number seven, don't commit adultery. Number eight, don't steal. Number nine, don't lie. Number 10, don't envy. Those were the commands that Moses brought down from God. And Moses tells them all to the people and the people respond, no problem. That looks like a great way to live. 
We can do all of that. Sounds like a good deal. You, God, guess what? You got a deal. So this huge throng of Israelites, like, like two million strong now, say in one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. You've kept your promises, God. We will keep ours. We are all in. Whatever you want us to do, you are Yahweh. You are our deliverer. You are the one and only true God. You are the great I am. And God says, okay, Moses, come on back up to the mountain and hang out with me, and I'm going to write these in stone so you'll always have them with you. Now, Moses knows that the children of Israel need a babysitter when he, when he leaves. So he leaves his brother Aaron behind to keep an eye on them. And the people grow impatient while they wait for Moses to get back, and God hadn't even had a chance to inscribe the first two commandments, and the people are coming to Aaron saying, hey, you know that Moses dude, your brother, that led us out here in the middle of nowhere? He's probably dead and gone by now. Uh, and, and, you know, I know we just said everything the Lord has said we will do. But guess what? Deal's off. Deal's off. We want a God. We need a God. Let's make a God. And the story tells how they pull all the gold that they got on the way out from Egypt. And they fashion this golden calf. And they begin to worship and dance around this golden God. They're drinking. They're getting wasted and doing all kinds of out of control crazy stuff. It says in Psalm 106 verse 21, they worship the golden calf because they forgot God. What? They forgot God? We forget God. So before we get too hard on Aaron and the Israelites, before we leave like the Ten Commandments here, I want to really quickly go back through them. I want you to keep track of the number that you have never broken. Now, don't raise your hand. Don't elbow the person next to you either. Just keep track of these in your mind. At the end, we'll do a little survey, and we'll see how good we really are. First commandment says this, no other gods before me. If you've always put God first in everything in your life, you can count that as one you've never, ever broken. The second commandment says, don't make any graven images or idols and bow down to those things. Now, we've talked a lot about how you, can, you and I can make idols out of all kinds of things, cars, homes, money, fitness, career, relationships, kids, whatever, but we're not going to count it that way. If you've never actually handcrafted a graven image or carved an idol and bowed down and worshiped it, you can count that as one you've never broken. Aren't you glad that one's on there? Third commandment says, don't take God's name in vain. If you've never profaned the name of God or the name of Jesus Christ by using it as a, as a flippant cuss word, if you've never just used the popular phrase, OMG, if you've never done something ungodly and you did it in God's name, you can count that as one you've never broken. The fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. If you've always set aside a day for rest, worship, and spiritual refreshment, you can count that one as one you've never broken. The fifth one says, honor your father and your mother. If as a child, you never once disobeyed your parents, and if as an adult, you've always shown proper respect for them, you can count that as one you've never broken. The sixth commandment says, do not murder. If you've never murdered anybody, you can count that as one you've never broken. Yes. Now, now Jesus comes along and says, if you're angry and you harbor hate in your heart towards somebody, you've already murdered them. But we're not going to count it that way. If you've never physically murdered anybody, 
you can count it as one that you've never broken. The seventh commandment says, don't commit adultery. If you never fooled around sexually before you were married, if after you were married, you've always maintained sexual exclusivity, you can count that as one you've never broken. Now again, Jesus comes along and says, if you lust after somebody in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. We're not going to count it that way. If you've, never, if you've never committed adultery, you can count that as one you've never broken. The Eighth Commandment says don't steal. If you've never stolen anything, I'm talking not a quarter out of your mom's purse, not a grape from the grocery store, not a towel from a Holiday Inn Express, not an answer off somebody else's test paper, not one cent from the IRS, you can count that as one you've never broken. Ninth Commandment says don't lie. If you've never told a lie, you just did. Number 10. <laughs> Don't covet. If you've never been envious of somebody else's car, their house, their job, their body, their spouse, their girlfriend, their boyfriend, you can count that as one you've never broken. All right, let's see how good we actually are. How many of you could say have kept all 10? Kept all 10 of them. How many would say nine, eight? Dang, y'all a wicked bunch of people. <laughs> hey, these commandments that God handed down, you know what they really are? the best way to live your life, right? They really are a moral code for a great life. This is a blueprint for the kind of life that loves God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and loves other people like you love God. But gang, the 10 commandments were much, 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 much more than that. You know what they are, right? A shadow of what was to come, what needed to come. I've always loved the way the Phillips translation puts Romans 3.20. It says, no man, no woman can justify themselves before God by a perfect performance of the law's demands. Indeed, it is the straight edge of the law that shows us just how crooked we really are. You see, the primary purpose of the Ten Commandments, the law, was not to make us better, but to make us see our desperate need for a Savior. It's the straight edge of the law that shows us just how crooked we really are. Look how that passage continues. One of the most pivotal passages in the entire New Testament of the Bible, Romans 3.21. But now, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, for everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, yet God with undeserved kindness declares we are righteous. And he did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sin. You see, laws, rules, rituals, sacrifices, obedience to commandments, they don't make us better. They help us realize how much we need God's grace how much every single one of us need a savior. They're all just a shadow pointing to the promised one who would lay down his life and bless the entire world. They are a shadow pointing to the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, religion is spelled D-O. What do I have to do? What do I have to do to appease a God that I know I've ticked off in some way? Just show me the checklist and I'll get after it. I'll just do it. I, and you know what? And I will do my very best. And I hope at the end, of the, in the end of my life, what I have done will be enough. Religion is spelled D-O. 
Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. It's not about what we do. It's about what's been done for us on a bloodstained cross. Ephesians 2 says God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, the old system under the law of Moses was only a what? Shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, not the good things themselves. The sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. You know where the city of Jerusalem was built? Mount Moriah. That shadowy place that Abraham took his son Isaac to sacrifice, the place where God stopped him from going through with it, it's the same place where another father and son would climb together. Another son would carry the wood on his back on which he would be laid only this time. When it was time for the sacrifice, no voice cried out to stop it. No ram was caught in the thicket. The son was the lamb. He was the sacrifice. Jesus, the promised one from the seed of Abraham, who would bless all the nations of the world, laid on a cross and gave his life. And the father let it all happen. That's radical love. And you know why? Because God longs for a relationship with people like us. People like us broke the relationship, so God moves. God takes the initiative, and he moves throughout all of history to restore the broken relationship through Jesus Christ. And he does it on Mount Moriah. Sometimes people will ask, who murdered Jesus? Like, who was really responsible for this unjust act of violence? I mean, how could something this unfair happen to so, someone who's so incredibly good? Well, let me let Jesus testify on his own behalf. He says, no one, no one can take my life from me. I laid down my life voluntarily for I have the right to lay it down when I want to and also the power to take it up again for my father has given me this command. Gang, Jesus chose to go through with this plan. He chose to lay it down. He chose to be the Passover lamb. He chose to take our place. He chose to take the rap for our sin and rebellion. He chose. He chose to endure rejection. He chose to endure betrayal. He chose to, to endure humiliation. He chose. He chose intense torture. He chose excruciating pain and brutal execution. He chose it all because he could see through all the shadows and saw your face and mine. He chose us. And now he asks, will you choose me? Because I want to lead you into a life of forgiveness and grace and freedom and joy and peace. And the life I offer is fresh and it's full and it's forever. Just choose me, follow me, believe in me, surrender to my love and leadership, and I will lead you toward that life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes would not perish, but have everlasting life. To look out heaven's window on a dark and dismal earth, what man once lost was found again in hope 
was given birth. In a smelly barn, a baby born, held by teenage hands, God showed up in just his way to fulfill his plan. You see, he heard us crying, pining, hiding, dying in our sin. So in unblemished love, God slipped into our skin and the word became flesh. And the greatest became least and swaddling clothes were wrapped around heaven's highest priest. Oh, holy night. Oh, night divine, when Jesus came into this world for your sin and mine. A Savior is born. In a womb he was formed, our flesh worn, to comfort those who mourn, calm the storm, have his flesh torn, his name scorned, wear a crown of thorns. Not the thing we want to see when looking in the straw at a manger at a baby, but he came to save us all. Made human became human, forgave human, saved human. He is holy, different, set apart King, Emmanuel, God with us, Yahweh, Prince of Peace. He's the soul's cry and the sinner's plea, belief and trust, he is enough. He is strength for the weak, refuge for the frightened, rest for the weary, shepherd of the wandering, healer to the hurting, forgiver of all sinners, savior of the world. His name is Jesus, the name above all other names the name who deserves all fame, the one who remains the same, who took our blame, our shame, our pain. He is all, almighty, all-knowing, all-loving, all-worthy, all-righteous, all-holy, all-beauty, all-truth, all-saving, saving all, all swaddled small. He came, he comes, he is to come. He was, he is, he lives in me. And if we turn our ears toward heaven, we'll hear angels' voices in one accord saying, peace, joy, goodwill for all who will call this baby Lord. Why not choose to let the shadow of the cross fall over your life today? This weekend's a baptism weekend. And some, as you've already seen, came ready to be baptized. But others of you, you know it's time. You weren't planning on it this weekend, but it's time. It's time to get right with God. And the only way to get right with God is to let Jesus Christ become the forgiver of your sin, the Lord of your life. So I invite you to take that step today. At the close of our service, we're gonna gonna sing a little worship song as we're singing. Just get up out of your seat and come on down front. We love to talk to you down front. You can be baptized today. We got everything you need. We got towels, we got t-shirts, we got shorts, we got hair dryers for those of you that need that kind of thing. Uh, Haven't used one of those in a long time. But why not just say, hey, somebody here, hold my phone, hold my glasses, take my watch, I'll I'll be back. And make that move today. Just say, Jesus Christ, I want you to be the forgiver of my sin. I, I, I want you, you're coming to earth to be for me. I want the broken relationship that my sin and rebellion have caused. I want it to be restored by your grace. So I'm gonna ask you to stand right now as, we, as we're singing. And after I pray, just come on down front as we're singing. And you can be baptized at the close of the service today. And Father, I just wanna, um, I just wanna thank you for this amazing, amazing story. God, every time I think about the whole of, of this love story, it just blows me away how you work through everything to bring us back to you. 
God, I, I, I thank you for all those shadows that point to the one who is to come, and I thank you that we have the privilege of knowing who it is. Thank you so much, Jesus, for doing what you've done. Thank you for coming, wrapping yourself in our flesh, walking among us so we would understand that you understand, that you really do get us. Thank you for the way you were tempted in every way that we are, but you didn't sin. You gave your life as a sinless sacrifice so we could be forgiven. And you chose to do it all. So God, thank you for that. And, and I just pray for those right now, maybe the Holy Spirit stirring in their heart saying, would you choose me? I pray that today they would choose you and that they would take a step of faith and say, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God that restores that broken relationship and I wanna put my life in his hands and I wanna follow him. Father, thank you for what you're doing in our midst. Thank you for what you're doing in our hearts. And thank you, God, for what you've done throughout all of history to bring us to this moment. And I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. So we're gonna sing as we're singing. You come on down front either side. We'd love to meet you down here.